Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 60. Hello, my name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Glenn Wokenfeld. Glenn is a biology teacher at Berkeley High School in Berkeley, California. With a few breaks, including work as a school administrator about 15 years ago and in the multimedia industry during the 90s, Glenn has been working as a teacher since 1987. He's currently also a co leader uh, for the Berkeley High School Science Department and has worked as a small school leader and co-coordinator for professional development. Glenn is well known for his music videos posted on YouTube and on sciencemusicvideos.com. These include The Cell Song, DNA Fantastic, and Membranes. His main project now is creating an online AP college-level biology Think of it as an interactive biology textbook. He's working to produce some biology lectures on his YouTube channel and an AP biology test prep app, which he hopes to soon release. Welcome, Glenn. Well, it's great to be here, Aaron. Thank you. Nice to see you again. We get, we're just uh, together, this now being in November, uh, and we were just recently together out, out in uh, San Diego. So that That's was nice, right. nice to see you. You were, you were working hard. Yeah. I was. It's the first time I've ever had um, a booth like that at that conference, and it was a new experience for me. It was great. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we, we passed each other in the exhibition hall, and I saw you once or twice running between sessions, but um, I felt like, I don't know how you felt it, but there, uh, you know, Friday and Saturday, I felt like the pacing of getting to sessions was like, um, it was it was wonderful and great, but um, I was rushing uh, quite a bit to get from session to session, so um there was a lot of great stuff there. Yeah, it was. I, you know, everyone was. Uh, it was sort of like I don't want to say it was complaining, but it, you know, it's like a, a complaining about the riches. It's like oh, how can, how am I going to pick of what session to go to out of these five great sessions? And I guess like that's so much better than a conference where you're like, well, I got nothing to do for the next four hours. So yeah, that's what you want a conference to be like. Great yeah. stuff to do from. Yeah, and I also um, I also didn't get shut out of any sessions too. Like I got in like everything I wanted to go to as crowded as the rooms were. Um, the fit was really good. So um, as always, Jackie puts on an amazing uh, uh, amazing show with the board members and all those. They just they did a tremendous job. And San Diego was uh, as we're preparing for the first snow in Massachusetts of the year. Um, San Diego was quite lovely. <laughs> yeah, um, you know we are having a really different and difficult situation in Northern California with the fires. In yeah. Fact. School is going to be closed down for my school district and many of the other school districts in the Bay Area. And this is an area that's known for stellar, fantastic air quality. Mm -hmm. And um, it's actually at very unhealthful levels right now. Oh, wow. And so it's the, the air quality um, as well as the fires that are closing down districts? Uh, well, it's not the fires per se, except, of course, in those areas that are directly impacted. But, you know, we're uh, 200, 300 miles away from those fires, which are north of Sacramento. And um, there's been a weird kind of inversion layer. So the smoke has all been trapped and it's deeply impacting the East Bay and San Francisco and the North Bay as well. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, we've been seeing the stories out here. And obviously there were some Southern California fires that weren't that far from us in San Diego that we were seeing on the news. But um, wow, I, I didn't realize that the as much as I know that this is a terrible fire season, I didn't realize it was having that profound an impact on um, even you who's that far away. 
Yes, it's been pretty terrible. Um, yeah. Are they are they hoping to? Do they have? I know that the last number I heard was they were at a thirty five percent containment. And again, this is mid November, um, and they had said that they want you know that fi- at fifty percent they would feel like they had turned a corner. Um, are they giving you a prognosis of how long they think this is going to last? Well, in terms of the smoke impact, one thing that could turn things around is we might have a rain pattern coming in next week, and that'll really change everything. Yeah. Well, hopefully yeah. you'll get rain for Thanksgiving, which. It's not normally something you wish for, but um, I hope for your sake you get rain for Thanksgiving next week. Thank you. All right. Well, um, let's let's get to the question. Um, I, we we met at the read, and I you know we had a lot. I feel like I talked to so many people at the read, um, and I, I remember we had some interesting conversations about you know school differences and that sort of stuff. But I don't know how you became a science teacher. So what led you into the classroom? You know, all those many years ago. I'm actually a convert to biology. Um, I majored in sociology, undergraduate at Brandeis University, um, which was a fantastic department that was very philosophical, where I got to read Jean-Paul Sartre and other existentialists and things like that. It was fantastic stuff. Um, I got out of college, and I spent a year where I just did a lot of wide and deep reading, and I started reading a lot of biology. And along the way, I read Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, and I was probably about 22 or 23 years old. I had actually moved out to Oregon at that time to initially work on a political campaign. And after reading Richard Dawkins, I thought, this is the coolest most intellectually challenging and stimulating stuff that I've ever read. And then a couple of years later, when I thought about being a teacher, I thought, you know what? Teaching biology seems like it would be about the coolest thing to teach. So I did a bunch of extra coursework at Portland State University and Lewis, Lewis and Clark College. Got just the bare, that I, the, the bare minimum that I needed to get my credential and then got into the classroom. And I feel like I've been playing catch up ever since. But it's, it's been um, I've never regretted becoming a biology teacher. Wow. So, so like now we're back in, as I said, you know, 87 is when you get in the classroom. So, so you then are up in Oregon, you're working, um, in there, um, and somehow you managed to find your way into administration at some point. Um, how did that happen? Um, well, I think like a lot of teachers, um, I, I started to feel after doing it for about 15 or 20 years that I was getting pretty good at my craft and, um, A lot of issues in education um, are really addressed at the administrative level. Like at at, at a classroom level, you can create a great environment for 30-some kids at a time, and you can really change lives. It's really important. But in terms of systemic issues that um, are related to program, are related to issues of equity, for example, those are really things that administrators get to address much more so than classroom teachers. And so I became interested in trying my hand at leadership at that level. It turned out that it wasn't really something that was to my taste. Um, I had a couple of good years as an assistant principal. I actually got to the principal level at a middle school and found that that level of running an institution and really taking care of the needs of adults was much less compelling to me than um being a classroom teacher. So I went back to it in about 2005 and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, I'm trying to remember my timeline here. You had, you had started making some music, some songs before that time. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah. So you want to hear the whole story? Yeah. So like, let's talk about how did you become this music video guy? I mean, I, I know the timing of YouTube and that would suggest that your return back to the classroom would sync up pretty nicely with some of the technology that came out at that time. But I know that you were working on some music stuff before that. So how did this start? How did this you lead into music videos? All right. So, um, you know, I've been playing guitar since I was a teenager and, um, the first teaching job after being a student teacher was at the Phoenix School of Roseburg. Hmm. That's an alternative school. And it was for kids who weren't making it in the public high school and middle school in Roseburg, Oregon. Roseburg is about an hour south of Eugene, where the University of Oregon is. And um, as a town, it was kind of having a hard time at that point. Uh, the lumber industry was sort of the mainstay of the town. There were a lot of issues related to the end of cheap old growth lumber that was happening right then. And so um, this was a school that was really humanistic. And we would start every morning with a song circle. And I wasn't the only guitarist teacher at the school. And one thing that I noticed is that kids at this alternative school who often had trouble focusing and were dealing with tons of um, very complex personal issues really could focus when we were playing Bob Dylan and the Beatles and Neil Young and whatever other kind of music was, was big in the 1970s and eighties. And um, inspiration hit me. And within about two days of teaching, I wrote a song that was called the cell song and the cell song now is my biggest song on YouTube. <laughs> um, anyhow, over the course of that year, I just, um, as we hit different topics in chemistry and biology, I wrote songs about them. And, um, teaching became um, something that was deeply intertwined with music, though it was always sort of a special thing. In other words, when we got to a topic like cells or food chains or chemical bonding, I'd bring in my guitar, and that was always sort of a very special treat that I had for kids, and kids would always be totally into it. Um, and it was really hard to see how I could share that with the rest of the world because making video used to be astonishingly difficult. You needed special equipment and you needed special editing tools and things like that. And then suddenly the technology really made it accessible to everybody. So um, I spent a year down, actually half a year down in Argentina with my wife and two kids in 2000. 7 2008 and we just wanted um our kids to have a chance to really learn spanish well my wife and i both speak it and we thought that um having them have this immersion experience would be an opportunity for them to become bilingual themselves and um my wife was working via the internet my kids were in school and i thought you know what i got to record some of these songs and figure out if there's a way that i could get them out to the world well Right about that time, YouTube was becoming a thing. And I thought, okay, why don't I release these songs on YouTube? Well, I recorded the songs right on my Macintosh computer using GarageBand. And then I thought, well, YouTube, it's a movie kind of um, medium. I should make a movie out of it. So I took a PowerPoint that I had and I sort of dropped in some video of myself. My first song was actually about photosynthesis that I newly wrote down there. And all of a sudden, people were watching it and making positive comments. And then the year later, I did about two more songs. And the year later, I did another song. Along the way, I did the Cell song. And um, YouTube contacted me about monetization. And I found that to be very motivating. I mean, there were the videos, and they were making money for me. And it was the easiest money that I ever made. Um, a couple of years later, I, turned, I teamed up with a guy named Max Cowan. He's... Um, 
a fantastic pianist. He's in a band called Atticid, which is an amazing Bay Area funk band. And he was also my son's piano teacher. And so I was casting around for somebody who could really produce very high quality music. And I'd also for my entire adult life really been interested in rap, but mostly just sort of as a bystander and enjoying it. And Max could actually produce rap music. And he sort of taught me how to rap. And that's when I did DNA Fantastic, which yep. was my first rap song. And then I kept on building um, from there. And that's gone on pretty much ever since. So I, though lately, my interests have turned away from music and much more towards directly curricular stuff. And that's where it's at. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the journey that you're talking about, about with the technology is, you know, as I sit here with my microphones in front of me and my recording uh, stuff is, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's almost like you, you took this thing that was just this passion, you mixed it up with what you were doing and, you know, you sort of were able to hobby, like make a hobby out of something that also has a professional benefit. Um, I guess that would be sort of the best way of describing it. It's super compelling. Um, I mean, for me, I'm at a different slightly phase of life than you are. I'm 56 <laughs> years old. And so I can actually see the end of my career. And, you know, the idea that like someone will take everything out of my filing cabinet and dump it out in the hallway for the custodian to take away, that is really not a compelling way for me to see the finish. And really what is much more compelling is the fact that through YouTube and through my website, I'm really um, – working in a medium that um, I can, first of all, continue to do once I'm retired from classroom teaching. But like, even beyond that, that's going to be reaching kids, changing lives, making biology, which I feel is like the greatest subject around, accessible to a lot of kids who otherwise wouldn't have access to it. So it's um, become a, a really important part of my life's mission to keep on putting out my own work, both musically and through the interactive software that I've been putting together on my website. Cool. It's a, uh, it's yeah. cool. Um, I'm going to, I want to get back to some of this, um, uh, in music videos and, and, and teaching stuff, but I do want to bring up something that came up at the read, um, where we had a conversation. I was just saying, um, you know, well, all these really great conversations. And one of the things that you talked about was, um, about the student body and diversity and access to AP classes. And I know you teach in a school that's very diverse, um, but you had some, some interesting uh, feelings and thoughts about, you know, um, access to AP. And I know personally in my school, there are, there are some, I would say just to describe cultural barriers. Students do not perceive that they could take the AP biology course in my school. Uh, and when I look at those students, I think that they could take it, but it's not even on their radar to take it. So I'm a little curious about what's going on in terms of um, you seeing access to AP and what you're seeing in Berkeley. What you said about your school seems very, very similar to the situation at Berkeley High School. Um, Berkeley, in terms of the number of kids and the kinds of kids who are mixing together under the roof of the school, is a very diverse place. But there's a lot of segregation in terms of program. None of that is really institutional. It's not really based on prerequisites or anything like that. But it's more about the kinds of classes that are perceived as being accessible to various kinds of kids. My AP classes are really much wider and Asian and and then the school is at large. They have much less representation, especially of African-Americans. African-American girls are a little bit more represented. African-American males are really underrepresented. There's actually starting to be a fair number of Latino kids mm. who are um, 
in, in our program. Um, and we've sort of uh, seen this as a departmental goal to try and improve those numbers, but it's a very, very slow process because um, I think it's about changing culture. And it's also about changing the way the classes are taught because if you're going to recruit kids of color to really um, enter the program and you're going to uh, get them in there, then you really need to provide them with a lot of support when you get in, when you get, those kids into the class because otherwise it's a real betrayal. So I think a lot of teachers are working on shifting their assessment systems um, and so on and so forth so that every kid has a chance of succeeding in these more challenging classes. Yeah, I think historically AP has always sort of been perceived and, and likely probably was, especially if you go back a few years, it was kind of a sink or swim course. You know, like this right. is this college-based course, you're going to come in, it's hard, it's rigorous, you're either an AP type kid or not an AP type kid. A very, uh, I would say that the way the AP was described was very fixed. It didn't have much of a growth mindset to it. And I feel that that has lingered. And I don't think that personally I am still in that mindset. Like I would, I don't mind a student coming in and struggling and helping to provide support and, and figuring out how to scaffold the course to do that. Um, the other thing I was saying to somebody just the other day is um, students are so rapid to drop in my school. Like if they come in and they're like struggling and it's early on and my kids are juniors and seniors, they're, they're terrified about having a grade on their transcripts like this. Oh, I got, I'm getting a C on this, this, in this course. They're afraid of what that looks like. And they don't realize that, yeah, you're struggling a little bit because we need to help you get better at things. And if they struggle on test one or test two, they just drop the course and they don't have the, the ability to work through that for and persevere through it, um, but also how well am I scaffolding the course on the back end to reduce that feeling of sinking? Um, and so what I've often said to students is, I would love to help support you. Stay here so I can learn how to support you. Um, but I just don't get many students who need the level of scaffolding to provide the access that I think probably in my heart of hearts I would like to provide. Um, it's, I'm providing it for fictional students because my students generally don't struggle in that way. Um, so I'm, I, was, I, was, I was heartened when you were talking about it this summer because I, I liked the idea that you were saying it's a departmental goal um, to really sort of be reflective about how you're providing access to students. You know, Berkeley is a very, very progressive community. Yeah. Um, and as teachers, I think we collectively feel a lot of um, shame and dismay about the fact that like college towns around the country, we have an enormous, enormous achievement gap. And part of that is because the high is so high at our school. We have the kids of UC professors who are um, in our school. And, you know, the gap doesn't narrow during the four years the kids are at Berkeley High School. It probably accelerates. And it partly accelerates because we have kids who are coming from families with more academic capital getting into AP classes and they wind up accelerating their own education. So it's a very complex situation. And equity has really been the focus of what we do in terms of professional development at Berkeley High School for years. Um, we've trained all of our teachers and supporting kids through academic language. So we're not even making assumptions about kids' ability to do comparing and contrasting and proposition and support. We've actually embraced the idea that all teachers are teachers of academic language as a way of diminishing the achievement gap. We've really focused on culturally responsive teaching in the last couple of years. And at the same time, um, 
while I think that African-Americans and Latinos do better at Berkeley High than they do in a lot of the rest of the county, and I think that Alameda County does better than a lot of the rest of California, I think we still have a huge, huge gap. And it's it's disheartening. Yeah. Well, I, I it, it is disheartening that there is that gap, but it is heartening to hear that there's, you know, uh, awareness of, of what's going on and like real work being put into, you know, trying to make the situation better. Um, and as you said, it's a complex, abstract issue. So um, I, I think that you, you may go down some wrong avenues trying to make things better, but you, if you don't try to make things better, it's definitely not going to improve. So um, yeah. I, I, I was I was heartened by that conversation. All right, let's Good. get let's get back to to um, slightly more positive things that we actually have some control over, which is um, music. So um, you know, I was you know earlier today doing my show prep, which involved watching music videos, which is weird. Um, but um, so like here I am, I'm watching these videos. Uh, how can I uh, you know? use the music to enhance the classroom? Like, how do I actually use this? I teach in a couple of different populations. One of them is an alternative program, um, similar to sort of the school that you're doing, but it's a more contained there. So like, how might I, 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 I've got a topic coming up and I, I'm looking through your videos. How could I, you know, use some of those in my classroom to, as, as a hook or as a core piece? What, what kind of ways could I use those videos? Well, I think there's there's so many different levels of engagement. First of all, I just think that in terms of everything that we know about um, memory and everything that we know about learning, um, multiple ways of providing content and multiple ways of getting kids to interact with content. I mean, what can be a music video for something like that? And um, I mean, for me, these are my music videos. So I I will have my kids... Uh, listen to them. Sometimes I'll have my kids sing them. I started a couple of years ago experiment, experimenting with karaoke, karaoke versions mm -hmm. of a lot of my videos. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll play the video for my students and then I'll just um, go around the room and I'll say, okay, your stanza one, your stanza two, your stanza three, and the kids are in pairs and I'll give them like three minutes to prepare how they're going to sing or rap their stanza. And then we'll go around the room and we'll sing it again. I have my kids sing the chorus and some of those choruses are really like spot on in terms of the content. So like, mm -hmm. for example, my electron transport chain, uh, the chorus is, the mitochondrial electron transport chain uses electron energy for pumping proton from the mitochondrial matrix to the intermembrane space, increasing proton concentration in that place, and so on. If you know the hook to that song, you've got what happens with chemiosmosis <laughs> and proton motive force. And actually, kids have told me that they've aced essays on the AP exam because they've been, you know, in their head humming to themselves about these songs. So I actually think it's just about teacher's ability to overcome perhaps their own inhibition about using music in the classroom. I mean, what could give a teacher more cred than actually trying to rap a song? <laughs> and, you know, you know, I've got the karaoke right there or even having their kids do it. I think it's a super fun way to do it. So it's a good way into the material. It's a good way out of the material. It's a fun way to sort of summarize and take a break. Um, so, you know, there's just tons of ways that you can use it. And, and you know, teachers are constantly reporting to me about how they use the songs, how their kids sing glycolysis, how it's become the class anthem for their song. <laughs> you know, it's really it's it's really fun stuff to hear about. 
Yeah, I'm definitely gonna. I, I've definitely been playing around with some uh, some of the stuff. I, I think my alternative program kids are going to be seeing one or two of these videos in the next couple of weeks. Um, so we'll have to see. I, I'm I'm curious about these these kids who uh, see if if they'll be willing to take the risk of doing karaoke. Uh, but because I do think that's a that's a sort of brave thing to do uh, in class is. culture. Yeah. So um, yeah, I think my AP kids would definitely be a little bit easier to, to throw them into that uh, into that mix. They're a little older, a little more confident. Um, so it'll be it'll be a fun challenge to see how they they tackle those things. And, and the songs are pitched exactly at the AP level. Like, yeah. like in fact, it might go maybe even a level beyond since the curriculum was redesigned in 2012. But, you know, I was never one of those teachers to teach all of the 10 reactions that are involved in glycolysis. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what's been important for kids to know? There's an investment phase, then the six carbon product gets cleaved in two, and then you harvest the energy. And that's what my glycolysis song teaches about. So if kids understand the content of the songs, it really guides them in a good way towards the content that they need to know for the AP exam. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now you're, so you've got this long list and it sounds like it's a lot of time and energy and investment into making these videos. Um, cause you know, you you you've got all of these songs, you're working on them. Um, and I can imagine that it probably takes a few, you know, quite a while to put that together, but you're now shifting over to creating these interactive biology tutorials, um, on your website, as well. So, you know, what are these and sort of how is this going to fit into your larger picture uh, that you're working on in terms of helping students learn? Right. So um, I've always felt that as as much fun as the songs are, they're a little bit of a novelty act. I mean, they're very, very lyrically dense. In four minutes, I cover the electron transport chain. In six minutes, I cover the nonspecific immune system. So they're not really quite right for primary learning. They're great for review. Um, So um, the interactive website that I have, um, in the same way that the music did, it evolved in a pretty organic way. So basically, um, I started the YouTube channel. And then teachers started making comments like, um, is there a handout for the lyrics for this song? And so I started putting together lyric sheets. And while you can't really post those directly on YouTube, so lo and behold, I made myself a website. So I made myself a website where I had curricular materials to support the songs. And that grew to include crossword puzzles and diagrams and sort of fill in the blanks exercises and so on and so forth. Now, I've been in education for a really long time, since 1987, but I'm sort of, um, that coincided with the whole computer revolution. So pretty much the entire time that I've been teaching, I've been using computers. And um, like, for example, I was writing hypercard stacks in the late 1980s and early 1990s that I was using to teach um, topics in biology because I've always felt that computer-assisted instruction was great. And it dovetails in a lot of ways with my own teaching style. My own teaching style is really infused with constant checking for understanding and making sure that kids are with me before going on. And that, if you're careful about it, is a pretty straightforward thing that you can bake into a computer-assisted tutorial. So um, I started um, putting quizzes on my website, and I was wise enough to know that um, I shouldn't write them myself. So I teamed up with a programmer his name is Dan Kirshner, okay. and he's a super talented programmer, and um, I know him from some of the work that we've done at Berkeley High School together. He's not teaching currently, but anyhow, 
he's created an entire backbone of um, computer-assisted instruction that we deliver through the website. And that consists of multiple choice quizzes, flashcards, a kind of hangman kind of game. And in addition, we've created tools that teachers can use to actually um, monitor their students' performance. And that's great in a couple of ways. One is that, as, as I'm sure you know and everybody agrees, having some accountability built into any lesson, that's a great thing. And on top of that, you know, we were talking about equity before. It lets you pretty quickly diagnose, like, who's getting it, who's not, and that allows you to intervene in a way that can support kids who might be struggling. So anyhow, the thing just began as a bunch of um, quizzes and flashcards, and then I realized that well, I've got a website. I can just <laughs> write complete tutorials. So then I started to create uh, things that were completely self-enclosed so that a student who didn't have prior knowledge of, for example, um, cell communication and signal, signal, uh, signaling cascades could actually go to my website. I'm going to be providing short readings, and then kids could take quizzes. And there's a way in which that interaction is a lot more effective for a lot of kids than – reading from a textbook or listening to a lecture. So ultimately, you know, over the next many years, because this is not going to be a quick project, <laughs> I want to have a complete biology curriculum online. I want all of those to involve short readings, tons of interactions so that kids really get to interact with the material. And that includes things like labeling diagrams and getting immediate feedback on the way those diagrams um are being labeled and, you know, answering quizzes that are multiple choice quizzes and flashcards. Um, and on top of that, I'm trying to now support the same things with um, video lectures. And I started that project actually a bunch of years ago. I have a series that's called Chemistry for Biology Students. And um, every tutorial is supported by a short lecture. And it really gives biology kids um, all the chemistry that they need to know, because you don't really need to know very much about SPDF orbitals to succeed in a biology class, but you sure do need to know the difference between a covalent bond, an ionic bond, and a hydrogen bond, and what polar covalent bonds are. And so those tutorials are among the most popular ones that I have, because they're giving kids the foundation to succeed in the rest of the biology that they're going to learn. Yeah, so this sounds like it's a, a you know another one of the, the various you know places where you're giving another opportunity for students to learn online. So the ex the idea is that students are going to have their classes, they're going to have their assignments and that sort of things, but this could provide uh, resources that could give that scaffolding without having, you know, if you're a teacher and you don't have the ability to make all these, this could be like that sort of scaffolding um, to help uh, with students who you've got a student in who might not have some background and you're like, oh, you need help in this area let's give you some time on this, these scaffolds uh, to get a little bit stronger. What, what I've been trying to do is actually very similar to that. So um, think about how great it would be if you could clone yourself yeah. so that there were two of you or three of you or four of you in the classroom. So what I've tried to do is I've tried to actually pour my teaching methods into those tutorials. And I think that that's especially effective for kids who are coming into the classroom with a little bit less academic capital, especially English language learners who need a lot more time to really process the material, interact with it before they wind up getting up to the level that other students are at. So um, I see it as a real equity move and I see it as a, a pro-achievement move for all students. All right, great. 
So I think we've talked a lot about you as the, you know, Glenn of the internet. Um, so, but you do get up every day and you go into a classroom and you interact with students there. What are you looking forward to in your classroom in the next, you know, handful of years that you've got? You know, there's so much about teaching that is so profoundly difficult. And, you know, I've been teaching um, mostly on, but slightly off for, Jesus, it's like 29 years now. It's kind of horrifying to think of it being that long a time period. But yeah, I started when I'm when I was when I was 27, and I'm 56 years old. So um, I still feel like every every lesson I give, I, I see that there are problems with it. There are weak points. There are ways in which my materials aren't really as clear as I'd like them to be. The one really cool experience that I've had with the website is that it's actually forced me to write down my approach and sort of concretize it in a way that I think I otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to do. And so um, the process of sort of like incremental improvement where you get to stand on your own shoulders, it's almost been accelerated and deepened by the fact that I've been creating web-based materials. But at the same time, like so much of my daily experience is actually being with students in the classroom. So um, there's a lot of stuff I need to get to be a lot better at. Um, you know, I was a sociology major undergraduate in a department where mathematical methods of sociology were not really the things that were emphasized. So I always feel that like my kids who have uh, taken three or four years of high school math are usually much more mathematically savvy than I am. And they can do a lot of things um, that I can't do. And in a way, that's good because I know that like whether I was a good teacher or not, they'd probably ace all of those questions that are on the math portion <laughs> of the exam because, you know, it's, it's not really such hard stuff. But I want to get much better at getting my kids to work with data. I want my students to be much better about doing experimentation. I feel there are ways in which um, I'm still viewing the laboratory component of my class as a way to um, exemplify concepts that I've taught through my website or through lecture, as opposed to having a truly deep inquiry part of my classroom. And of course, even with the adjustments to the curriculum that have happened since the 2012 redesign, it's still a lot of material to cover. So um, the challenge of doing inquiry is that, well, you do a lab and you're doing inquiry and it doesn't work. Well, if you're doing inquiry, you should do it again. But like how much opportunity and how much time can you allow to doing it again while still making sure that kids have the requisite background knowledge so that when they go into the AP exam, they really are not spending too much time figuring out the vocabulary and figuring out the content, but that their minds are really clear to do the kind of problem solving that the AP exam is requiring of them. So figuring out that balance is, is challenging. And, and I'm in a very, very generous situation, I feel like, in terms of time. Um, but still... Um, I, I feel time pressure in terms of moving forward, but that's nevertheless an area of the course that I'd like to develop a little bit more, the inquiry component, the lab component, things like that. Well, so yeah. plenty to work on. That's, it's good. I, I think it, I find it was interesting. I asked you what you're looking forward to, and then you proceeded to give me a laundry list of things you don't think you do very well, which <laughs> I think is a, uh, I no, it's, I, it's often, it's the way my mindset works too. So I think it's a great, I think it reflects very positively on you that like, when I ask you what you're looking forward to, you, you harped on, on the areas to improve, which is again, you know, lifelong learner. That's the goal. Right. And that's the thing that I love about teaching. I mean, I am 
I am 56 years old. I've been teaching since I've been 27. And I am still totally juiced by getting into the classroom, by trying to explain really complicated things. I mean, I had an experience today where I was teaching this very day about signal transduction pathways. And after my third period class, I thought, you know what? I explained that in a totally confusing way. And so I spent my lunch period like adjusting my lecture so that it would go a lot better with my next class. And it actually did. I figured out a narrative through the material that was much better. And I feel like that happens that that happens to me still very frequently with lessons that at this point are pretty finely tuned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, it, it's funny because when you say that, like I was, you know, yesterday I felt like I was just drained. It was at the end of the day and I got to the end of the day. But um, as drained as I was, I I had set up and we were doing Punnett squares and, you know, intro bio stuff. And um, and my goal is really to get these kids to see how Punnett squares are based off of meiosis. Like that was my goal. These kids can plug and chug, but could they make the connection? And I got to that moment and I got to the question that I had challenged them all of them. And I posed the question and I heard, oh, like three or four of them in a row. And I was like, all right, I know I'm tired, but that was it. That was the whole payoff for the whole day long. Yeah. Hearing light bulbs go off in your classroom is pretty much about as good a day as you can have. Um, and it was like, all right. I may not have done a lot of things perfectly today, but I got, you know, I had a goal today and I got the light bulbs to go off. And then today we were doing a follow-up activity and they like crushed it. They like zoomed right through because it was that re reinforcement of what we were doing. And I felt like, oh, yep. Did I really have that moment yesterday? Yes, absolutely. Because they blew right through the thing today as we yeah. were introing it. So yeah, the, the kids are, you know. Kids are the best. That's why we do it. <laughs> I tell my students that I live for teen wonder. Like when I have a kid peering through a microscope and saying, that is so cool. Like that, that's what I'm in this game for. It's, it's the best. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, I was telling somebody just the other day um, that who was not a teacher. I was like, the number one thing is you got to, you got to enjoy the kids. You got whatever level you teach, you have to enjoy the people at that level and you got to love the subject. And then you got to live the craft. And it's like all three of those. If you're somebody who like enjoys teens, teens but you don't have a passion for your subject, like I, I don't know how that would work. And if uh, similarly, yeah. this is so hard, you have to be able to geek out a little bit on the craft. Just as you're saying, you have to want to go back and refine the process of helping students make those connections. Um, otherwise, you know, I think if you can't keep all three of those fires going, that then this job gets really, really hard, really, yeah. really fast. Yeah. I think that's really true. And I think that I find that I'm, I'm challenged by every aspect. So like, for example, how do you pull off a lab in a way that avoids bottlenecks, promotes safety, provides easy access to all the materials, provides an opportunity for kids to really do some experimentation? Um, you know, those, those are things that like continue to be things that I, I continue to fine tune. And I'm also still having this experience where like, Every year around October, I find myself having this thought like, wow, this is like the best group of kids that I've ever had. And it's not like my kids last year weren't fantastic. And it's not like the kids the year before that weren't fantastic, too. It's like you go through this process of almost like coming to love this new group of students. And I feel like when I stop feeling that, then it's probably going to be time for me to like move full time <laughs> into multimedia creation and stop standing in front of kids. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I can hear that. All right. So uh, before we get to questions and picks, when you are not teaching, uh, what do you like to do? Well, um, you know, I have a musical life that actually extends beyond biology music. So um, I have a neighbor who I get together with 
um, once a week. We've been writing some songs. We're thinking about recording them. You know, some of them are actually a little bit sciencey, but you know, some of them are about just life and about love and about relationships and stuff like that. So that's important to me. Um, not, I mean, I, I would probably be overdrawn for me to describe myself as an avid bicyclist, but you know, I bicycle slowly up into the Berkeley Hills um, every weekend though, you know, now with the air quality, I've had to take a break from that. You know, I try and work out. Um, I have two kids. Um, I have a great family life. We have a terrific community here in Berkeley. Um, I like watching movies. So, you know, um, I listen to books on Audible voraciously and I sort of devour all their biology titles, which is really what keeps me fresh and keeps me um, exposed to new ideas. So, you know, all of those things are, are keeping things going. Though right now, um, you, you know, I sort of am trying to set up sciencemusicvideos.com as, as really a, a viable business. I'm trying to get mm. people to subscribe to the website and selling teacher site licenses. And just keeping that going is now absorbing a huge amount of my, my time. He's a very talented programmer and he's been programming an AP bio app. So we have a weekly meeting where we talk about that. So um, all of those little things are, are keeping me super busy. I, I probably need to have less things that I'm involved with, not more. <laughs> yeah, as many of the people I talk to here, it's, it's like, how many hours are there in the day? Yes, uh, not enough, not enough in the, yeah. to get to all of it. And you probably know this from, from podcasts, but yeah. um, I've been making movies. And I've been trying to make YouTube movies. And like the amount of time it takes to pull off a credible four-minute movie <laughs> Not even, not even like a, a, a music video, but just like um, talking to the camera. I mean, and I'm trying to do it in a professional way. I've got a green screen studio set up in um, one of my, my kids' rooms. My kids are both young adults. And so I was able to take over one of my kids' rooms and convert it into a green screen studio. So like I'm filming and I'm recording and then I'm doing a ton of editing. You know, that is, that is a huge endeavor. So like, there's no time to do anything else. This is it. Biology all the time. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I did uh, flipped classroom videos for my classes. I started that project last year and making, you know, 10 to 12 minute videos. And, you know, I get very rave reviews uh, from and I, I give them all the honors bio teachers uh, use the we use the same cohort of videos. Um, and my videos get very positive reviews from the students. And um, they're like, oh, yeah, that they're great. They're they're great. And I say, I love geeking out on audio and video editing, so it's kind of like a hobby, but I, it takes me, it was early on, it was taking me like three hours to put together a like 10 minute video because I would go through and I'd nitpick and I'd edit and I'd animate and I'd do all these things. And I was being like hyper nerdy about them because that's just who I am and how I approached it. Um, but I think everyone individually has their own standards. And if I was going to put something out in the world that was going to be con for consumption for my students, it had to meet a certain threshold. And to not put in sort of a lot of time and produce something that was not as useful for them wouldn't have been satisfying. Um, and I found myself, you know, re-recording things or doing things over, or, you know, uh, making sure I could get a product that both I was satisfied with and met what I felt like the students' needs were. It does. It takes an enormous amount of time. So I can I can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, good art is very iterative. And, yeah, you know, it, it takes many, many. I mean, I guess maybe it's a little bit different if you're if you're like a performance artist. But even then, 
you've got to practice before you can get it to the level where you can bring it to the public. But I find that music and video, you know, they're both processes that involve draft after draft after draft. And I'm trying to be more efficient about my video production process, but it is still, um, you know, hours and hours for, for every one of these five or 10 minute videos. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe it. <laughs> All right. So before we get to picks, do you have any questions for me? Um, well, I'm, I am curious, you know, you get to talk to a lot of educators. Yeah. So um, what are some of the coolest things that, that you're seeing in biology education these days? Um, uh, so many different things. I think, you know, my, my biggest take home is that, um, and I knew this before I started this project, but there's like no right way to do this. Um, there's like a million right ways to do it. But um, I guess the, the biggest things that have come to me is um, it's made me question why I do all of the things that I do. Not to say that any of the things I do are wrong, but it makes me ask the question of, um, it's raised the the standard of what is essential. Um, so like I have, since I started doing this, you know, two and a half years ago, as I, as I mentioned, I, um, I pretty made a, a, a shift that I was already starting to make from being a very teacher centered classroom to being a very non teacher centered classroom, very student centered, um, went to a flip blended model, um, really with both my honors and my AP classes. Um, I've changed up how my use my formative assessments, uh, with students. I've, I, I've increased, I've sort of up to the volume on a lot of things that I did a little bit of and, I've cranked up the volume on things that I felt were really essential because I was seeing and hearing ways people were doing things that were in the same spirit of what I wanted to do, but they were doing them a little differently. And it, it is to use the word iterative. It provided me a reflection point that I couldn't get on my own of, Oh, they do it that way. I could change the way I'm doing this and maybe not copy what somebody else is doing, but it, it gave me this new reflection point to, to try new things. Um, you know, I jokingly say that it's, it's accelerated my professional development personally by five or 10 years, just, you know, these last couple of years, because, uh, I've got all of these great ideas. Um, I'd also say that I am much more aware of my weaknesses as a teacher, um, because, you know, it's, it could, I could have closed my door in my building and I'm, you know, pretty well respected and, you know, people like me and I, I could have just stood in front of the room and been a lecturer. But when you get to hear the amazing things that a lot of teachers are doing around the country and um, just the humanity they bring to their job, it allows you to reflect on ways you can get better as well. You know, similar to sort of how you responded when I asked you what you're looking forward to. It's super interesting because one of the experiences that I have when I go to a conference like the NABT is like you're in a room of teachers who have like turned their classroom into a research lab. And it's like, that is so admirable. And it's so beyond anything that I think I would be willing to take on. So it's hard not to feel a little bit insecure about what you do when you're sort of face to face with all of this great teaching. And um, yeah, it, it's interesting. You know, it's it's such a complex activity. There are so many ways to get kids to be sophisticated biological thinkers. Um, yeah, and and uh, and it's it's just a very humbling endeavor, and I, and I feel really grateful that um, I have a job that sort of uh, kept me inspired and uh, focused on self improvement for thirty years. Holy yeah. cow! Yeah, and you know, I think that's probably when you you mentioned that. Like, um, I actually I think that doing this and talking to all these people, um, I've really stopped comparing myself to other people. 
Like mm. I, I like just it's not. And I, I've heard um, especially some younger teachers and like when they go on to the college board uh, discussion boards or, or the AP um, on Facebook or or those types of things. Um, and I've heard a little bit of, of feedback from some younger teachers that it's like overwhelming. And they're like, oh, all of these people are doing this amazing stuff. And, you know, and it really is that like you know, comparison is the thief of joy, I believe is the expression. And, you know, like I, I've learned to sort of celebrate the fact that there are so many different ways of doing this and that, Uh um, I am imperfect and I will, I can tell you my flaws very easily. Um, I can't always tell other people's flaws really easily. Um, especially in this format where I'm asking people to highlight the things they do super well. Um, like I'm not going to play guitar in my classroom tomorrow. It doesn't matter. I am a, I am a, I am a lousy guitar player. When it comes to being a lousy guitar player, I'm a bad guitar player. Um, and I certainly am not going to sing, um, uh, or rap. Uh, these are, these are things that I'm not going to be doing in front of my students, but I don't feel like I'm necessarily lesser because I'm not doing those things. Um, I bring a different skill set into my class. Uh, but at the same time, the, the level of engagement that I could do by doing certain things and doing things that are authentic, those are the messages that I've gotten and say, you know, how do you just do what you do as well as you can and learn from the other people? So, uh, yeah, as I said, for me, it's been a super, it has been the perpetual professional conference that I go to, you know, a couple times a month. So cool. Very cool. All right, we have reached picks of the episode, and Glenn, yours is. You were mentioning your voracious listening to audiobooks earlier. Uh, what is your pick of the episode? Yeah, so you know, right now I'm listening to um, a book called Origin Story. It's um, actually not per se a biology read. I usually do that, um, but this is um, a big history, and uh, big history was something that was developed by David Christian. This is a book by David Christian, and basically it's looking at history from multiple scales, and um, that includes going right back to the Big Bang and talking about the, you know, the 13.8 billion year history of the universe, and then talking about the origin of life. And um, one thing that I would highly recommend to your listeners or, or anybody is um, he does a fantastic job. And this is a history teacher who's talking about the origin of life. And he's talking about how in a, in a universe that is forever increasingly more entropic, there is the possibility for the channeling of energy in ways that can create these little rivers of complexity. And that's really what life is all about, you know, rivers of complexity in this otherwise uh, ongoing sea of entropy, which is what the history of the universe has been since the Big Bang. So he does a fabulous job talking about that. And I would encourage anybody to go through the first two or three chapters of this book and actually go through the whole thing, because we're all going to be richer biology teachers if we know a little bit more about world culture and world history. And what's really cool about that is... um, one of the speakers at NABT was uh, the guy who wrote the big picture, Sean Carroll. Yeah. And Sean Carroll, a physicist, a fabulous job talking entropy, history, the origin of life, the origin of consciousness, really a phenomenal read. And I actually listened to that book three times in a row on Audible because I found it so compelling. Yeah, we had both Sean Carrolls talking, Sean B. Carroll and Sean M. Carroll, both talking I, at NABT. I told my students about that, and they couldn't believe that, like, the two keynote speakers were both Sean Carroll. But um, <laughs> I had a great opportunity um, 
visiting with both. Um, and Sean Carroll, the biologist, I mean, he's been a hero of mine forever. Um, you know, back when he first wrote uh, Endless Forms Most Beautiful, I thought he was about the coolest scientist around. And I went ahead and read his book about evolution, the making of the fittest. And I read the Serengeti rules. And just, um, I actually had the opportunity to just sort of walk with him for about two minutes as we were both heading towards the tent when he was doing a book signing. And uh, chatting with him was like a great thrill because he's a, a truly important guy who's really helped um buttress all of us who sometimes have to teach evolution in challenging environments. I'm, I'm not in that category, but yeah. I know that for many of us who are, HHMI is, is like the greatest thing ever. So, yeah, I, I am not in, I am not challenged uh, either in that way, but um, yeah, it's a uh, it, it, great resources. And um, you had also mentioned that big history was, um, you know, a course that David Christian developed. And I actually did talk to somebody at NABT who's working on teaching that course, which I find interdisciplinary courses super fascinating, um, as I mentioned in a recent show. Uh, but that's another one of those that that's out there. So um, yeah, maybe that's the way I, maybe that's the way I trick people in my building. I got to like drop big history, the origin story um, on like the desks of all of the history department and see who's a taker. Um, <laughs> to, to yeah, it's, it's pretty great stuff. And, and sometimes like I, I wonder if I'll have, one more act in me after I finish this online biology curriculum supported by lectures. I mean, I don't know if I will, but if I did, teaching a course like that myself would be an amazing way to go out as a teacher. That would just be the best. All right. Well, my pick is uh, another one I'm just stealing right from David Kanofsky. David uh, likes to email me and send me things. And he had sent me uh, uh, this uh, bio numbers uh website and it's uh it's called search bio numbers and it's a database and it basically aims to enable you to find in one minute any useful molecular biology number that uh can be important for and they say research in particular but like for example you can find the size of a glucose molecule in open chain form um you know in in nanometers, uh, you know, just at the at the click of a button, it's 1.5 nanometers to find a glucose molecule in open chain form. Uh, why would you need to know that? I don't know, but this is a very interesting um, thing. There's other things in here. The average duration of a single blink of a human eye is between 0.1 and point, uh, 0.4 seconds. Um, and then... Uh, other things that they had in here, uh, the diameter diameter of um, a neutrophil in humans is approximately 8.4 micrometers. So nice. it's, it's just like, it's crazy awesome stuff uh, in here. And um, you know, I like this, you know, how many of pretty much everything, the number of hairs on a human head, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I mean, this is probably average, uh, is, is between, <laughs> is uh, it's a unitless number, they say, is between um, uh, 90,000 and 150,000. So, wow. yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, it's one of these great, uh, you know, bio numbers database um, of you, what they call useful biological numbers, and it's searchable too. So you could click in, you know, something and, you know, 
you get a whole bunch of answers from that. Um, they also have what they call key bio numbers, recent bio numbers, that sort of stuff. And so key bio numbers include some certain key concentrations, uh, some genome sizes, some energetics, that sort of thing. So again, a, a, a kind of neat mathy way to hook into biology. And um, yeah. I call this, uh, this is the other, I did this on another, uh, another episode, another math pick. And it, to me, it's a total rabbit hole. Like you start clicking on this and next thing you know, it's like 20 minutes later and you're like, what happened to the last 20 minutes? I was just right. clicking and clicking and clicking. So, you know, that's really cool because, um, I was just recommended to go to this same site and that's because I did a post on the AP bio Facebook group and I was trying to see if there was any like widely accepted number for the amount of time onion root tip cells spend in the various phases of mitosis. And I was directed to go to this site. So very cool. Yeah. And I mean, how many times do your kids ask you a question like this in class? Right. And you're like, I don't know. Uh, why well, would I know that number? I'm going to post this. I'm going to, I'm going to put a link to this on my website because it's such a useful thing. Cool. All yeah. right. Well, Glenn, thank you again for joining me. This has been a great talk. Um, let me give credits to my episode. Uh, you can support this and every episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Uh, I also post up uh, show notes uh, on that website and I do early releases for my Patreons uh, in a Slack community uh, that is also visited by the members of the Patreons of John Darko and David Kanofke. You Music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. Uh, you can get show notes in addition to the Patreon page at lifeoftheschool.org and you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. And Glenn, you are... You're using your same tag. You're the same as your music videos, right? You're at Science Music Videos. Yeah, I'm not much of a tweeter. So really what I want people to be doing is subscribing to my website, sciencemusicvideos.com. And of course, I have the YouTube channel, which is, you know, youtube.com slash videos. It's all right there. All right. So Glenn's in the same spot. So thanks, everybody, for joining me. And I'll talk to everybody soon. Bye.